joining me, Pete Holtzman, for the Credentials Only Podcast, where you are introduced to people who work in sports. Today's guest is Julia Fry, the Head of Communications for Extreme E. Julia is 18 months into her tenure in Extreme E, but racing will not begin until 2021. We don't have any action going on until next year Um, so we need to be building content we need to be um, you know staying relevant we need to be building a fan base when there's actually nothing to follow using electric vehicles and racing in locations impacted by climate change extreme e sets out to be more than just a racing series the younger generation that are kind of coming through now they all they love sport but they they also need something that makes sense and has a purpose um, I think we all do actually, <laughs> you know, the way the world is going. Um, and that gives us that edge. It's a reason to watch, but it's a reason to, to take notice. With that mission, Julia is becoming a quick study on not just motorsports, but also technology, science, the environment, and even politics on a very local level. I guess what we just need to do well is brief ourselves, talk to the right people. You know, we, we deal with partners on the ground. We deal with scientists. And really it's about, you know, asking the right people the right questions building up the facts. Prior to Extreme E, Julia was with an around-the-world boat race, an event that presents unique coverage challenges. We would basically train up crew to help us be media crew as well. So we'd give them cameras, uh, we gave them a media laptop, uh, would ask for you know five pictures a day, um, would ask them to record stuff on video if, if interesting things happened. In addition, Julia has worked with a number of the top marathons around the world. You know, the journalists are covering the elite side, but they're also covering, I guess we call it the completer side. You've got thousands of um, people doing it for all different reasons. And I guess that's where the stories of triumph come from a marathon. It's kind of twofold, isn't it? Check out credentialsonly.com for show notes that include more information on what we discussed in this episode. And please take a moment to leave a rating and a review wherever you access podcasts. Without further ado, please enjoy this conversation with Julia Fry of Credentials Only. Thanks so much for being here today, Julia. You have a very diverse background working in sports communications and the project you have been a part of has some very unique characteristics. So I'm looking forward to learning more about each of them as we talk. Let's start with your current role. What is Extreme E? So Extreme E is an all-electric off-road rally motorsport. So um, you know the, the first unique part is that it's electric. Uh, completely 100% electric SUVs Um, and then the cool aspect of it is that we're going to be racing in places that are either under threat or already damaged by climate change so we're going to be going to some of the most remote parts of the planet uh, where motorsport or sport has never been before so we'll be off to you know the farthest reaches of Saudi Arabia out in the desert um, to the Greenland ice cap uh, to the coasts of Senegal near Dakar uh, down to the Amazon rainforest, uh, up in the state of Para, um, to the uh, air, incredible area of Patagonia in Argentina. Uh, and it's going to be, yeah, a sport for purpose. So it's been born out of the climate change uh, crisis. And it's about using sport to tell some really incredible, very impactful stories about why we all need to pay attention to, you know, our daily actions and, and how we can help, you know, be a solution for the planet. And going through and doing some research on this, it was very obvious that climate change is an important part of the story here. How much does that help 
as a communicator when every last bit of the property you're working with is so mission focused? Yeah, I think it definitely helps. I think, um, we, you know, when we announced this, we were definitely on the encroach of, you know, sport needing to have a greater purpose to, to be relevant in, you know, to, to young people these days. Um, you know, Generation Z, or as we like to call them, uh, the younger generation that are kind of coming through now, they all, they love sport, but they, they also need something that makes sense and has a purpose. Um, I think we all do actually, <laughs> you know, the way the world is going. Um, and that gives us that edge. It's a reason to watch, but it's a reason to, to take notice. And it, it, it starts to make it a bit more, um, not unique, because I think all sports are kind of building social purpose into their kind of missions now, but it means that we can do it very naturally because it's built in from the beginning. And it's been part of, you know, the whole idea rather than having to react and, you know, change your mission. Our mission is uh, very clear from the very start. And I think that's, you know, as a communicator, that's kind of quite easy to deal with. Um, whereas, you know, other sports are having to work out what their mission is. Um, and, and everyone will have a mission, but I think being able to be very clear from the start is, is a great, great help. One of the unique facets of the competition is that you and Extreme E are making equality a big part of it. How are you doing that within your race weekends? Yeah, so this was a really exciting part. I mean, obviously when Extreme E was first launched, um, the idea was that its purpose would be to talk about climate change and, it, and that's still staying very true to that. But as we went and, you know, the great thing about being part of a startup, which, you know, a very small team is we get to discuss things around a boardroom. And when it came to talking about our sporting format, we were like, well, you know, we're saying we're a platform for, for positive change. You know, that should include equality as well. Um, you know, there isn't a motorsport, you know, there aren't many females at the top um, height of motorsport, you know, not compared to males. And we thought, why, why can't our sport be, be something, you know, that is very positive um, and puts people on a gender equal playing field? So the whole idea with our sporting format is that every team will have two drivers and every, drive, every team will have a male and a female driver. So that's part of the sporting regulations. Um, when it comes to the actual racing, each driver will do a lap um, of the same course in the same car um, and halfway at the end of that first lap will be a driver changeover. So I guess sort of like our pit lane, um, you're going to have to have a very quick changeover of drivers um, and it's up to the teams which order the drivers go in. So, and you, you won't know the other team selections. So you will have lots of male versus female um, laps um, and the combined effort of that team is, yeah, first over the finish line. And it's not timed, but it's um, how they get over the finish line. And I think it's going to be incredibly exciting. There's nothing like this in motorsport already. Um, don't know why not, but, uh, you know, we're proud to be the first to fly that flag. And I guess it, it, it exists in other sports. It's not like there isn't any gender equal sporting formats out there. You've got mixed doubles in tennis. So why can't you have a similar situation in motorsport is what we kind of wondered. And, you know, you get some sort of pushback and some people saying, well, it should be done on merit. And it's like, well, actually that's not working for females at the moment. So what is the threat of putting them together in a completely equal format? Um, and why, why not? Like people say, why? We just say, why, why the hell not? It doesn't exist anywhere else. So let's, let's make it happen. Within those weekends, you're obviously going to be touching on the climate issues in whatever locale you're in, but you are also there to race. What are those races like? I mean, being electric vehicles, can't imagine they're some 1,000-mile track. 
No, you're right. So it's going to be short format racing, um, which we think works very well for a digital format and also for bringing kind of new and younger audiences in. You know, there's plenty of sports where you can watch them for you know hours at a time, uh, motorsports wise. But this is about short, sharp, you know, high action. Um, these cars are built to go for you know at full speed up to 20 minutes, half an hour. But these these races will be around 15 minutes. Um, so you'll have yeah qualifying rounds that it won't just be one one race and that's done there'll be qualifying and then there'll be semi-finals there's going to be a crazy race which um essentially reverses the the fortunes of getting through to the final so say we've got eight cars um going into a race weekend you know your qualifying will set you from one to eight at the end of qualifying those first four will go through to semi-final one um and then the first three finishes of that race will all progress to the final. So the chances are pretty good. Um, and then the bottom four of that original group uh, from standing, uh, sorry, sorry, from qualifications, will go into what we call the crazy race, um, where, you know, all four cars will compete and only one will go through. So it's kind of that wild card opportunity to join the, uh, the other three in the final. So, yeah, every race will be slightly different in terms of its... Um, it's uh, chances for, for success, um, but they'll yeah be short, sharp. Um, we think there'll be you know a lot of wheel to wheel kind of photo finishes and uh, high octane sort of yeah very thrilling. And there's a few elements in there that allow well will allow fans to get involved. Uh, and there's a few elements of surprise where well not surprise but when you so there'll be a jump element um, and a team that records the the longest jump will get a kind of speed boost. We're calling it, calling it hyper boost. Um, so a few bits in there to kind of throw the fortunes, but essentially it's all going to be down to, to driver drivability. When these races are happening in these unbelievable locations that you mentioned, how will you guys be using that platform to talk about not only climate change globally, but then locally what it's done and what it's doing in these communities and what the communities are doing to work through that? Yeah, I think um, it's going to be at every level, really. Um, you know, the live broadcast is is going to be uh, the classic kind of sports presentation, but we're going to be weaving bits of education into that. So, you know, we're working on overlays, whether we're in Greenland and, you know, we're racing in front of the ice cap, but we're able to show sort of, okay, 20 years ago, the ice cap was actually right here where we were racing, that kind of thing. And in another 20 years, you know, the rice cap is, not the rice cap, the ice cap behind you is now here. But in 20 years, you know, it's going to be further off into the distance. And being able to, like, show visually what our locations are looking like, you know, in the past, now, and then in the future, I think will be pretty impactful. Um, but then it's also about, you know, getting to know the people in our locations, championing them, telling their stories, getting to work out, you know, how climate change is affecting their daily lives. Um, because I don't think, you know, it's very easy to, just see what's going on around us, but not really understand like what's going on in these remote places. And it's not their actions that are causing it. You know, the islands and the small places where, you know, they don't have many inhabitants or, you know, out in the middle of the Pacific, uh, sorry, South Pacific, um, you know, they're not contributing as much to climate change as we are, but they're, they're feeling the dramatic effects of it. And I think it's important to hear, to hear local voices in that. So yeah, it will be the sports broadcast. It will be the wider sort of, um, uh, press releases and, and feature storytelling and photography um, that we can do alongside the series too. For you as the communications voice, you have to now get up to speed on motorsport. 
but this is a different type of motorsport. So there's the technology piece. You're also then taking on this mission and having to learn about the environment. And in some of these areas are geopolitical concerns that play into all of this as well. How are you onboarding all of this knowledge as you guys get ready to launch? Uh, yeah, it's totally, it's a really good question because, um, you know, we're, we're dealing with so many different subjects. As you say, like motorsport was a new subject for me anyway. Um, so you have to learn a lot of, you know, historical context, um, find out very quickly who everyone is, not look stupid in meetings. Um, so that's one thing. But uh, the science and the tech side is is another thing. And every day of Extreme e, like we're dealing with different types of subjects and, you know, not even just in the UK, it's then going to Senegal, it's going to Greenland, working out the different cultural aspects, Saudi. Um, there's a huge amount to be involved, but I guess what we just need to do well is brief ourselves, talk to the right people. You know, we, we deal with partners on the ground, we deal with scientists and really it's about, you know, asking the right people the right questions building up the facts, um, you know, when you're writing a press release, go, working out who is best to go to, to, you know, have a briefing call, ask all the questions, you know, ask lots of questions, ask stupid questions. And I do that quite a lot. Um, but I'm always really honest when we have meetings that, you know, when we do introductions, I'm kind of like, you know, I'm Julia, I've not been working in motorsport before and make people really aware that I will be asking you stupid questions. But I think that has actually, it's not stopped now, but I've, gone on a long journey with it over the last 18 months so it's been a um what would you call it a, a baptism of fire but and that's still continuing but it's just read everything ask everything and then be a sponge i guess take take a lot of time to to listen as well you mentioned 18 months you've been working on this for a while and yet you're still not until 21 going to have the first race what has it been like for you to be building out the communications plan to keep extreme in the news to be making news as you're preparing to launch the circuit for the first time next year um yeah it's been uh relentless really i think to build a series um you have to have an always-on approach i as you say we don't have any action going on until next year um so we need to be building content we need to be um you know staying relevant we need to be building a fan base when there's actually nothing to follow so it's it's a really big task actually and i've never worked for a startup before um so i can't compare it but i would say i work for the most ambitious people i've ever worked for like they have big visions the ideas and what they want to do with this is literally limitless um, you know, from day one, I was yeah the first communications person on the project. There was like five of us. You have to go back to basics. You have to lay the foundations. You have to build the comms plan, decide, you know, what your objectives are going to be, what success is, who your audiences are, like what your pillars are, like um, who your, you know, what your brand plan is, what you want to communicate and what you stand for, like everything. So at the beginning of this, there was a lot of, yeah, brainstorming, kind of running stuff out on big kind of post-its and boards and planning it together. Um, so we, that's been, you know, the, the first part of the project and then building the always on approach, like working out what your storylines are, what your content capture opportunities are. Um, you know, we've done everything over the last 18 months from, you know, build our car, launch the car at Goodwood, start finding our locations, going on recce's, starting to work out what our storylines are and who the people are on the ground that we, we can work with, um, bringing our teams in because 
part of this is, you know, you, you're not going to have a series if you don't have the teams and the sponsors to come with you. Um, you know, having test events where you get to put, you know, big name drivers in the car, get them raving about, you know, how good it was. And those drivers, you know, are some of the biggest in the name of the sport. So we had a couple of weeks ago in France, Valtteri Bottas from Formula One. Um, you know, we had a couple that I still can't mention, but are really big in rally and, you know, Dakar rally, literally the top people in the game that know exactly what they're talking about people in formula formula e world rally cross world rally series um you know the, the highest achievers in their different series um and then it's about making the most of little wins like you know when we get broadcast deals shouting about them you know go to those markets tell them that you can watch the series in in that country um and then it's you know it's not just with journalists it's building your social channels building constantly um engaging social posts and uh yeah it's honestly relentless like every day we could have something to announce and we need to build a calendar that's completely flat out and keeping you know our sponsors happy that have signed up because again you're asking them to invest in a product that doesn't exist yet and you've got to make it exist uh it's, it's the most relentless thing i've ever worked on but also the most exciting you mentioned the ambitions i, I do want to ask one other thing about Extreme E, and it has nothing to do with the cars. What is the St. Helena? <laughs> oh, I'm glad you asked about her. She is our centerpiece, like our kind of our, our star. Um, she's a cargo passenger ship, and she, for 20 odd years, was the only kind of mode of transport between the island of St. Helena um, and land. So um, Cape Town was you know, her kind of routes. So you'd take people, post, um, you know, supplies, provisions between the island and, and the nearest kind of land area. So um, she was a lifeline to that uh, island. She's, you know, that somebody, she's, I keep talking about her as a person, but, you know, people are very fond of her and ships, I guess I always called her. So I'm going to talk about her like she's a real person. But um, yeah, the St. Helena was a lifeline and she's going to be our lifeline now and she's going to go on a really important mission. Um, and for us, that mission means taking all of our freight and logistics, um, which include our cars all around the world. Um, we think, you know, Going by ship uh, is the more it's a more sustainable route than going by air, and we we're trying to be sustainable in, in every decision we make, um, which means that we've only got five locations because we need to kind of sail between each one. Um, but it does cut our emissions. Um, we've spent the last eighteen months kind of refitting her because yeah, she's a thirty-year-old ship which hasn't maybe been given a huge amount of love and, and care. So we had to go back to basics, refurb her. Um, she's almost done now and. Uh, yeah, she's going to be a very interesting part of our journey. And, you know, we're giving her some upgrades. So we're, we're putting a science laboratory on board so that we can have science and research students kind of doing ocean uh, science as they go from race to race, which is also a really cool element of this. And just, I guess, this is what I love about the project. They, they think in so many layers and, you know, it's much more than just a sport. And uh, it's, yeah, really exciting. I think talking about a boat is the perfect segue to where you were previously, which is the Clipper Round the World Race. As it sounds, it's a yacht race that goes around the globe, but it's broken up into segments. And those segments meant you and the organizers were setting up ports in some pretty spectacular places. What were a few of those stops for that event? Oh, um, good question. I have to delve back into the memory banks. Um, 
we went from, so we always started in the UK and that was either London or Liverpool, which is obviously very exotic. Um, and then we would go to South America. So I think my first couple of races were Rio and then we uh, changed that up to Punta del Este in Uruguay, which was an incredible place. Very, very um, friendly community, really vibrant, very proud kind of nation there. Um, and then we would go from South America to uh, South Africa and that was always Cape Town. So we did three races where I went to Cape Town, um, which is an incredible place. I'd never been to South Africa before and uh, managed to uh, weave in a bit of a very delayed honeymoon in that stage. So I think my, my husband benefited sometimes from, from some of the places that we got to go to, which I guess you've got to make it work for yourself. Um, and then South Africa, they would go across the Southern Ocean, uh, a place called the Roaring Forties, which was always very stormy um, to get to Australia. And we would normally stop in the West Coast of Australia, sorry, yeah, West Coast. So normally Perth area or Fremantle. Um, and then we'd go down to Sydney. So we normally spent Sydney uh, Christmas in Sydney um, where we competed in the Sydney Hobart race, which is pretty cool. It's one of the most watched events in Australia. Um, happens on, yeah, Chris, uh, Boxing Day. So that was always quite cool to have. I've never have a, had a Christmas away from home other than yeah, in Australia. So that was, that was pretty awesome. Uh, and then we would go up to the East Coast um, in Early Beach, which was near the Whitsundays, which again, funnily enough, my husband came out to that one as well. He normally picked the good ones. Um, <laughs> that was, yeah, a particularly beautiful, beautiful spot. And then um, after Australia, they would head north up to China. So we ended up going to Qingdao, um, which hosts the, or will host the Olympic uh, sailing, um, which is, yeah, pretty cool, big coastal city in Qingdao. Uh, I think the addition after I left, they added two more Chinese cities. China was becoming a really big region for that. Um, and then it was the big one. So they left Qingdao and went across the Pacific Ocean, um, which took about a month, and then would hit the west coast of the USA. And yeah, I can see you shaking your head there, Pete. Absolutely, like completely frightening place. I mean, you're further from land than anywhere else on the planet. I think you're closer to, um, you know, spacemen in the International Space Station at that point. Um, you know, just one of the most remote places you can be on Earth. Um, and then they would get to, yeah, West Coast USA, get the good old American welcome. Um, so we did Seattle uh, for the last couple of races, which is wonderful place uh really enjoy the time there uh and they've done i think um san francisco there as well uh and then after that it goes through the panama canal up to new york so panama was a pretty cool place i got to go there in my last race um really uh tropical and uh some incredible places around there to spend a few days um then yeah up to new york so we'd meet back up in the the u.s there uh, spent a lot of time in New York previously for the New York Marathon and um, we were just across the, the water actually in New Jersey but with I think what's the best view of New York actually being able to see Manhattan from just across the water um, pretty awesome sight um, and then it was kind of the home leg so heading to Northern Ireland uh, a place called Derry Londonderry which was just always I mean amazing crack as you can imagine the Northern Irish put on a party like no other um, and then back to the UK from there. So that's quite a long answer. Apologies for that, but it was quite a long journey. Um, I think at one year I got to go to Jamaica and the, the locations would change up a bit. Um, so one year I was in Jamaica and I remember one night 
I think I told you about, you know, boats coming in all night. I remember thinking, God, this is really tough. Like, poor me kind of thing. Because I think I had like a half an hour, maybe a half an hour between boat arrivals. And it was, it was crazy. And then, you know, you see the sunrise come up on a beach in Jamaica and you realise, like, no one's going to, no one's going to listen to you if you, you phone home to complain about this. Like, there's no complaints. And those are now very, just very happy memories. Um, so what's it like for these racers who are going around the world when they get to these ports, do they get it, you know, 24 hours? Are they actually there for a little bit before they get into the next leg? Um, it depends. I mean, so the way they set it up was you could either choose to do the whole, the whole journey, um, and do every leg or you could do different legs. So sometimes if you were arriving to a port and you were leaving, I guess you would tag on a bit of a holiday. Um, but in general terms, I mean, you arrive and it's like that incredible moment where, you know, you've seen land again, you haven't seen land for a month, like, you know, they always smell so bad, but it doesn't stop giving them a big hug. You know, they haven't showered properly in a month, like, it's quite feral. Um, but you, you kind of just ignore that. It's, you know, being in a mix zone and seeing someone sweaty after a marathon is like nothing compared to this. Um, so the first thing is, yeah, get, get everyone a drink, have a celebration drink. And then, yeah, I mean, we, we always worked with the local port to set up like experiences so that, you know, you could get to experience a bit of what makes that region so interesting, like whether that's wine tours or, I don't know, tours to the local like um, tourist attractions and, and places. But I mean, generally the, the crew worked really hard. They had to get their boats ready for the next race, um, which involves normally fixing things and repairing sails and you know, I think we managed to do the mix of party hard and uh, work hard at the same time. Um, but it was mostly a lot of work. With this race, they're sailing all the time, day and night. How are you keeping up with it and doing your job of the communications role while all this is happening an ocean away, literally, and in the middle of your night a lot of the time? Yeah, no, it's a really good question. Um, we we basically asked each team to send a blog back every day. So we would get a skipper report, um, which came to us at a set time in the morning. So you had to brief them very heavily. And, you know, the race office and the race director really supported us with this. But every morning, six o'clock, we got sent a skipper report detailing what had happened um, that previous day. So, you know, asking them to give us all the technical information because we did have a lot of, you know, he hardcore heavy duty sailor um, journalists and sailing enthusiasts following it. So they want to know wind speeds, um, you know, uh, weather conditions, uh, you know, everything like that. So we, we would basically compile a report and that would be on every day. We call it the daily update. Um, by 10 o'clock that morning, we'd have turned skip 12 skipper reports into one daily update talking about, you know, who's leading, who's made best progress, you know, interesting things that have happened, whether they've spotted, you know, wildlife or, you know, had an incredible sunset or, you know, what, what's gone on, like with the weather that they're seeing and what they're observing. Um, and then on top of that, we obviously want the crew to be in touch with their friends and family um, and being able to tell the, the crew's story was, was a big part of this as well. Um, cause I don't know if I've, people probably don't realize, but it was everyday people, not, you know, elite sailors on these boats. And I think that's what made it so interesting from a comms perspective. It was people like you and I, like, you know, you didn't have to have sailing experience. So going out and doing this was like the ultimate adventure. So we would get, um, crew reports back and we'd kind of proof those, put them on the website. So there was always quite a lot of content for people to read. Um, we asked the boats to do at least one, 
um, crew report every day. Um, and then we would basically train up crew to help us be media crew as well. So we'd give them cameras, uh, we gave them a media laptop, um, would ask for you know five pictures a day, um, would ask them to record stuff on video if, if interesting things happened, and they were able to send back some video, but obviously it's very expensive using satellites. Um, but we had to basically train them to say, look, if something happens, we need you to pick up a camera and film it. And you know, actually those gave us some of the best moments. I mean, we, yeah, uh, sailing's not easy. It's, it's pretty extreme. And we did have tough moments where, you know, you had a crew member overboard in the middle of the Pacific. Um, you know, the particular media crew member on that boat did as we asked and picked up the camera and was filming the rescue, which luckily was a rescue situation. Um, and we were able to turn that footage around, send it to the US. And I think it was on the morning, uh, the Today Show, CBS, um, went out via AP and it went kind of all around the world. And we were able to do that from the middle of an ocean using, you know, a 90 second video clip. Um, but that takes planning. You have to put these things um, in advance, you know, uh, get this, get these systems in advance. And, you know, 20, 20 years they've been running the clipper race and they did have these systems in place. And uh, I guess it, it works and you could always do more. We, People always wanted more images, but um, I think I think we did pretty well with with the the challenges. Forty thousand nautical miles. How many days does it take then to do that whole race if you did the entirety of it? Um, the entirety of it. Oh, that's a good question. Um, so eleven months. They would probably spend eight months of those at sea. Probably seven. Yeah, seven to eight months at sea. It was. 13 races and the races, the minimum, there was one race that was three days, which is the Sydney Hobart, but otherwise the minimum really was sort of 10 days to two weeks. And the longest would be about 31, 32 days, which was the Pacific crossing. So, uh, and you'd normally get ooh, like a week, maybe 10 days between each race. Some days it was shorter because if you were last in, the, the, the departure day is still the same. So you get less time in port so there was an added incentive to be fast um but there were some days where you know you'd have really bad weather and you you can't just turn on your engine that's against the sailing the, the regulations the sporting regs so um you know there was unfortunately some periods between i think it's between the uk and south america where you hit this area called the doldrums and there was like no wind and yeah. one year it was particularly bad and one of the teams literally got into Rio, I think they were meant to leave again the next day to head to South, um, South Africa. And you can't push calendars back. I mean, everything revolves around being in ports by certain windows. So, you know, having to tell a team that, great, you're here, like, let's get you kind of fed and watered, but you're going back out racing tomorrow. Like, that's, that's pretty hardcore. It was, it's got to be one of the toughest endurance challenges on the planet, especially for those that end up going all the way around. It's absolutely mental. And I think the fact that it is everyday people, like it's so much more impressive because they're not trained to compete in these scenarios. They're choosing to, and uh, yeah, always had massive respect for those people. How many boats typically do the entire? So uh, all the boats did all the way. Um, that was 12 teams that we had. Okay. Um, so yeah, 12 teams up to, it was about between like 16 and 22 on, on a boat. So that's a 70 foot, yacht and uh, it's not very big to be holed up with you know people that you don't necessarily know until you you set off and go sailing with it's the ultimate sort of 
team experience and yeah I mean absolutely crazy that's where but it's where you form you know friendships and bonds that last an, a real lifetime you go through so much together it's it's totally crazy <laughs> that's a marathon but you've done the actual marathon 26.2 New York London Chicago some of the most renowned marathons in the world covering a marathon is probably its own unique challenge it's again not in a stadium it's 26 miles through these major metropolitan areas what are the unique challenges there um there's a few really i guess covering it starts like a week beforehand you set up a big press operation site you do press conferences in the lead up to those uh, events you you get the athletes talking about the challenges about their training um, on the race day itself it's a really early start usually um, you know we we get there get all the journalists in um, I guess the it's actually quite funny because during the race it's quite quiet everyone's kind of watching it because they, they want to watch it they want to see what's going on that's um, you know the most important part so it's funny on a race day like yeah the press press area is quite quiet and then the madness comes um you know because the good thing is you you can see the whole track you've got um you know camera people on bikes following the lead pack um you've got helicopters following it they know the route so you can see exactly where you know to cover it it's it's a big job obviously but um and it's a lot a, a long track but it, it can be done um and then it's it's really just getting you know the split times per mile the data side of it i guess is is really big so that journalists can be following, you know, who's leading at different mile points, what their splits are, if they're slowing down and speeding up. And I guess the, the big action part really um, from our side and covering it is then the end of the race. Um, and I think the challenge is you've got thousands of people doing a marathon. Um, you know, the journalists are covering the elite side, but they're also covering, I guess we call it the completer side. You've got thousands of um, people doing it for all different reasons and, I guess that's where the stories of triumph come from a marathon. It's kind of twofold, isn't it? It's like the elite side of it. Um, and then it's the, the completer side of it in those everyday stories. Um, and to find people at the end of a finish line in the mix zone in a marathon, that's, that's a whole new um, challenge, you know? We used to resort to, I mean, for the, for the front runners, it's quite easy because they come across the line first and you kind of bring them over to the mix zone and, you know, they, they come through and they, they talk to the journalists there. Um, and then you get them back to the hotel to do a press conference for the, for the winners. Um, but for the completers, and if you're there, you've come from the New York marathon, you want to find somebody from your borough that you're reporting on, you know, trying to pick them out of literally thousands of people. It's, it's difficult, but we found ways. So, you know, we'd get big boards and write up, you know, you from Long Island or you're a fireman or, you know, come and talk to us. And they literally, they would see the board and then come over and you just have to, you know, work it out. And I guess trial and error. We, um, I did, I think nine New York marathons and, um, you know, you just, you work out the, the formula a little bit more every year, but it's, it's an interesting place to be. It smells a lot. It smells really bad on the end of a finish line yeah. uh, marathon. But um, you get used to it. <laughs> is there something wired differently in these endurance athletes, both the, the getting back to the yachting and being on that boat for a month, but also running 26 miles? Is there just something different? Yeah, that's a good question. We've asked ourselves that a lot, like at the Clipper Race, um, you know, where that sense of adventure comes from. Is it in your DNA or is it learnt? Um, I, do think, I do think people are, are built with an innate, like, skill of being either incredibly focused and not having the obstacles that other people put up in their minds like 
for example, my my boss at the Clipper Race, our founder, he was the first man to sail solo nonstop around the world. And, you know, to do that, it took him, I think it was 312 days straight. This was back in 1969, 1968. Um, God, I'm forgetting now because I, I used to know that off the top of my head. Um, but yeah, he's when we talked to him and spent a long time like interviewing him about it because it was his 50th anniversary of that trip recently and got to really try and get inside his mind. And actually he's just kind of black and white. Like he saw it, he decided, you know, that's what he wanted to do. And he didn't have anything in his mind telling him, well, hang on a minute. Have you thought about this? Or, you know, putting blockages in. And I think you have to be quite single minded to, to do that. Um, And then I think, it's also circumstance as well. It's either mentally built in or it's circumstances that you go through that you decide, actually, I'm, I'm going to do this. I'm going to come over something or I'm going to set myself a goal. And that can be sometimes, um, yeah, what you go through in life. Um, you know, sometimes when you reach lows, you decide to, you know, outdo it by doing something else crazy. But you need to, you, you basically, I don't know, you need a reason. And where your motivation comes from, it's, I've, I've spoken to so many people that have done it for so many different reasons, whether it's yeah, heartbreak or trying to prove something to themselves or because somebody told them they were too old to do it and uh, trying to prove something is, is one thing. But yeah, I don't know. Some people just have it built into their DNA that they need to push themselves to get the, the next high. I don't know. Which are great stories to tell. And I think that's, as a communicator, that's probably what you look for is the opportunity yeah. to help those people tell those stories. It, the challenge is then getting it out of them. And I think for the elite athletes, it is just so single-mindedly focused for those completers. They might not necessarily be in the storytelling business. They're just doing it. So how do you balance both those narratives to get the best stories out to all the media who are looking to, to tell something? Yeah, definitely. It's it's definitely different. I think with a elite sports person, they that's their career. They they understand what they're doing, but in a way, it doesn't seem it doesn't come across as very remarkable sometimes because to them, you know, they've achieved something incredible. And when you ask them about it, it's an everyday achievement for them because that's what they're trained to do. It's not surprising. Um, so you sometimes struggle to get the emotion and the reaction that you, you want. I think when you're at the Olympics and it's something you've trained for four years to do and you're, you know, you've done it, you do get an amazing reaction and there is incredible emotion there, but on a day to day basis, um, it can be harder to get that, you know, that emotion and that, that reaction that you're looking for. Whereas with an everyday kind of person, I guess we call them maybe the completer or whatever you want to call them, um, you and I, um, it's something very out of the ordinary you do get incredible stories, as you say, like everybody had a different reason for doing this. You know, I did, I think three races. Um, and I always thought I've, I've reached my max now of people like that are going to give me a different story, but then there was always a new story, always something that surprised me. And I think the hard thing is some people are either shy and they don't want to tell you the story. So you have to ask the right questions to get out of them. Um, you know, sometimes that's just, finding them at the right time uh, and asking them the right questions, but they don't always come to you to tell that story. Cause if you're fairly introverted or you don't think you're anything special, you're not going to be shouting about it. And that was often, they were often the best people to speak to the ones that weren't shouting about why they were there. Cause you know, when you find out some really surprising things and a lot of people aren't comfortable talking about themselves either. So you needed to put a bit of time into it. Um, but it's, I think that's where all the value came for me was finding the stories that 
you just don't hear every day, which you relate to because you could read about this and go, oh my God, that person looks like me. They have similar kind of experiences in life, but they've gone and done this. Like, I didn't think I could ever do something like that, but actually I'm now rethinking that. And it was really, yeah, I guess inspirational is a word that is overused at times, but it really was. Um, you know, I, I was talking to people like, you know, twice my age who were going out and doing the stuff that I look at my parents and I, I couldn't imagine them doing something like that. But, you know, yeah, they, they were the best moments actually of the people that I really could relate to completing stuff and literally saying that they felt like rock stars. They want to, they're on a, uh, a stage, you know, having won a race, getting a medal and having their photo taken and speaking to the press in that country. And they just felt like rock stars. And it, it's quite cool to see. You've also had the opportunity to work a couple of Olympic games. What makes the Olympics so unique and so different? Uh, yeah, it's a good question. Um, I think it makes it unique. Um, you know, it's athletes, but they're not always at people that are ha- household names. Um, you know, they're amateur athletes that are just very good at what they do. There's, I mean, there's a range of sports there that you can watch. You can, you can sit and watch the Olympics day in, day out. You know, you might not be a fan of synchronized swimming, but suddenly by the end of, you know, day one or diving, you, you know everything about it and can be a complete critique on whether someone's dive was, you know, an eight or a 10 and you get really strong opinions on it. Um, it's, yeah, it takes you into a world where you, you didn't even know you liked certain sports. Um, and I think, you know, for those athletes, it's something that they've worked on for, you know, four years to get to that point. It's the epitome of their whole career. And I think seeing people go through a journey um, and whether they or not they succeed, because I think the, the lows are as not good to watch, but are as interesting to watch as the highs, you know, especially to work on it. If you're in the mix zone at the end of an Olympics, you're never going to get someone that's just fairly casual about it. It's either you're seeing people at their depths of desperation and sadness bawling their eyes out because four years of planning hasn't gone well and they didn't end up with a medal um, and they've let their country down or you know whatever their perception is um, or you're seeing people you know representing their country their, their country might not have even heard of their name before they go to the olympics but then you're on a podium you know it's, it's incredible it's getting to see people's human reactions really and it is very human it's not you're not watching the NBA stars or the Premier League stars that you know in and out. You're learning about people through their successes. And I don't know, it's always made the most inspiring TV for me, to be honest. We've talked about your different experiences, very unique events. What are the common elements, though, of your work, of being a sports communications professional that weaves through all these different things you've been able to do? Um, I think it's... I guess it's stories of positivity, like stories that inspire, like we watch sport for, and we play sport and we watch sport for an escape and to do something that makes us feel good, I guess. And, you know, whether that's when you're playing sport as a young person and, you know, you're learning about teamwork and adversity and where your boundaries are, you get to see that. And we can't all be an elite sports athlete, but we can all watch the journey they go through. And it is, you know, it's translatable to so many parts of our life. Like, someone's success on the pitch, you know, whether it's your team that wins and you're watching them, it can rub off on you. It's an infectious um, kind of feeling to see people win. And I I think we like to see people succeed. We also like to see people fail, unfortunately, Um, especially if it's the other team or somebody that you, you, you maybe have a sporting rivalry with, but there's, there's just a real emotion there. Like, 
everyone's laid bare, like everyone's trying their hardest. And I don't know, I think some of the greatest stories you've ever seen are people that you've heard of, like, you know, succeeding, I think. Um, you know, the failures are hard to watch, but they're also, it's where you, you learn most about yourself. And we like to see people that, you know, go through massive failures, but also come through, persevere and come back stronger. And I just think there's so many positive lessons to be learned from sport. And whether or not you play it, whether or not you just watch it, it's, it, it changes the mood of a nation. You know, I remember back to days when Euro 96, when we were young, um, football was obviously the biggest thing in the UK. When we lost to Germany on those penalties, the whole country went into mass depression. It was so sad. You know, when you, if your team gets relegated, you're just in a, a crappy mood. But when your team wins and you get promoted or you, you see England win the Rugby World Cup, it's moments like that that you remember forever. And I think a lot of us look at our life and milestones of, you know, when sporting achievements happened and you, yeah, you remember that forever. I don't know what, what it is about it, but it's just incredibly motivating, inspiring kind of world to, to be in. You've got a unique group of media that you need to work with and all these different things from the local writer looking for a runner from their borough in New York to the person who covers elite runners all the time and is looking for the splits or the, the motorsports media that you're now learning so quickly. Uh, it's a unique challenge, each of them. How do you prepare yourself to cover all of these stories so well? Cool. Uh, yeah, um, you, you kind of just have to think about it, all the different angles. So, for example, with Extreme E, like we target sports and motorsport first, and that's that's been quite simple because you know that they want, you know, the stats on the car, the drivers, the who's going to drive, which teams are going to be involved. Like, it's quite straightforward, but it's also then thinking about, you know, how do you attract the sustainability-minded press? So when, you know, you could be speaking to, you know, Reuters, motorsport writer in the morning, you know, the next call could be like it was today with um, Eurosport on sustainability and you give them a whole new set of facts and a whole new set of story angles because you know they're not, you don't, they don't want to know, they don't care about the car, they want to know what your legacy project is or what your sustainability mission is. Um, I guess getting prepared for that, it's about writing it down, like having press packs that go into different subjects, being, as you say, thoroughly prepared, but also knowing how to target different journalists and what those stories are. And, you know, the answer is a lot of Google Docs, a lot of sheets that I share with my PR teams, different sheets for everything, um, different sheets for, you know, different um, contact lists. So if we're doing a press release on one subject, it goes to motorsport. If we're doing a press release on you know, our broadcast or uh, a new partner that's coming in, maybe it goes more to the business press, sports industry press, and just, yeah, segment, segmenting your contacts so that you're not, you're speaking to the right people for the right story. And then, yeah, working out those angles and making sure you're telling them what, what they want to hear. Because you can slice this story up in so many different ways um, and not overkilling people with information at the same point. But how you do it well all the time, yeah, that's the challenge. And, um, you know, when I'm planning stuff, um, we split these into pillars of sports, uh, environment, tech, and then sort of B2B sport industry related bits. Um, and I try and just pace those out so you're not constantly doing, you know, the same stories and bombarding people with too much information. Um, but how you do it really well all the time, I don't know whether anyone can ever get that fully right. You just gotta, gotta do your best, I guess. The media landscape is ever-changing. How has that impacted 
the work that you do over the years? Yeah, it's changed a lot. I mean, I've only been doing this 15 years and I've worked with a lot of people that have been doing this, you know, a lot longer and I guess have seen this shift in digital reporting, um, you know, a lot more seriously. Um, I guess since I've been doing it, I guess that that shift to social media and people actually being a channel in their own right is is in some ways, you know, cutting out the process for media and operations. Um, but you need to, you know, keep it relevant. I think being able to... Um, service the the media has become you know a constant never-ending mission it used to be one deadline a day to get into print now it's you know they'll 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 put stuff up every minute if if you give them the amount of stuff so i think there's more you're more kind of on now um but then it's also about yeah building your own channels so servicing the journalists and giving them what they need um but also building your audience so building your engagement on socials, being able to go direct to your fans with the messages that you want um, and doing that for your, your athletes as well and creating, you know, their own um, areas on social media uh, and their presence. I don't know many athletes that don't have social media presence these days, but even if, you know, somebody else runs it for them, um, but it just means that you're getting more direct with your messaging. Um, you know, we've moved away from the press conference being the most important thing to you know the mix zone and that flash quote and that immediate response um and having you know not having to wait now for a press conference that's almost done away with you're you're able to speak to anyone you want if you get the right access in the mix zone or at the finish line um i think it's yeah about being on all the time and there's you know more ways to do that now you've got the podcasts you've got you know the blogs you've got um you know the social media kind of outlets now it's not just traditional outlets so there's a lot more journalists and people that you need to engage in with as well. I think that's a perfect segue into the set pieces, which I close <laughs> every episode with. Yes. Asking first, podcasts and newsletters. What are some of the resources you're using to keep informed? Yeah, so on podcasts, um, there's a really good one called The Unofficial Partner, which is sports business, and it talks about a lot of you know, different um, players in the market and how entities are yeah, using different media types. And I, I really like that one. Um, I guess for podcasts, I actually usually use that more as a bit of a switch off and a way to like expand your mind as well, because it can't all be business. Um, so I love um, Oprah Winfrey's Super Soul conversations. Um, you know, you start hearing from people that, you know, might not work just in sports, but I think, you know, everything's translatable. Um, and uh things like Ariana Huffington, Thrive, like it's all just really positive stuff and examples of people doing incredible things. Um, I went through a stage during lockdown of, I think I did Deepak Chopra's 21 Days of Abundance series. Um, he deals a lot with, yeah, infinite potential and it's quite, um, I don't know if I use the word spiritual, but sort of mindfulness meets like believing in yourself type things. I didn't think just very positive. Um, and then there's things like, yeah, Friday Night com Comedy on Radio 4, which is always good fun, really witty. Um, and a thing called The Infinite Monkey Cage, which is by a guy called Dr. Brian Cox. And you're looking at me funnily there, but um, it's all about, like, he's, he's such a super smart guy. Um, and he talks everything from quantum physics to, you know, um, stargazing and the science of coral reefs or dreams or black holes. But he makes it sound like, kind of easy to digest so um newsletter wise 
I'm most for newsletters. I try to keep it pretty related to industry. So every day I get, yeah, iSport Connect, Sports Industry, Sports Pro, which um, Sports Pro is really good at, you know, all the kind of US related sports business as well. Um, Cause it is very different, the sports industries and you try and, I guess it's, you try and keep in touch with what's going on nationally where we are, but also across the pond, it's really important to be knowing and learning lessons from how completely different sports are, are, are approaching very similar challenges. Um, and yeah, there's a few others, but they're, they're pretty, pretty heavily sports business, my newsletters. Speaking of social media, who are your most valuable followers? Whose posts do you want to make sure you see? Um, I think I have an issue with social feeds that I follow too many people. I think when you work in so many different sports and you end up trying to follow everyone within that sport, you pick up a huge amount of, you know, noise on your feeds. But in general, the ones that stand out to me are, you know, the big wires. So like, you know, the BBCs, the Reuters, the APs, um, but then it's the clubs and the teams that you're working with at the time and your sponsors, but also your competitors as well. Like trying to see what your competitors are doing. And that doesn't mean just in your sport, but, all sports, the ones that are leading in their field. So I follow, I wouldn't say I follow everyone because that's definite overreaction, but I follow a lot of people and just try, um, yeah, I try and try and restrict the scrolling. It can get out of hand, but um, yeah, key, key people and brands and journalists as well. What are a couple of books that you'd recommend people read? Um, I think from a sports perspective, um, I read a really good one recently, well, I say recently, in the last year called The Boys in the Boat. Um, and it was about, uh, it's a very famous one out of Seattle where it's about a team, uh, a group of people training for, uh, I can't remember which Olympics it is now. Um, one of the Olympics are way back. Uh, I should know that. Uh, but I found it really interesting. It's about struggling through adversity and, you know, keeping your eye on the goal. Um, and then, Andre Agassi's Open, I found incredible. One of the best sports biographies I've read because it wasn't a classic, I love my sport and this is how I got there. It was, I hate this, I don't want to do it, but I'm forced to do it. And actually, yeah, what, what that journey was. Um, and then, yeah, lots, a lot of books that aren't sports related. So I love reading books that are based in a country when you're in a country or just before you're going to a country, like to kind of understand like culturally, maybe through fiction, but um, some really powerful ones I read were uh, Memoirs of a Geisha before I went to Japan, um, based in Kyoto. It made the whole experience just totally magical. Um, and then to the sad as well, like when I was in Cambodia, Cambodia, read First They Killed My Father, which is just brutal. And I think if you ever go somewhere like that, that's got, you know, a history to it you have to understand what people have gone through so yeah totally brutal brutal um to you know the tango singer which was set in buenos aires um and it's around the streets of san telmo and you i don't know it brings books bring places to life as well as as people for me but yeah i need a good book at the moment i think um i need some good recommendations so i'll be hitting you up soon <laughs> as you're quarantining you have time to read you also have time to get lost in some streaming any shows you're streaming right now? Um, yeah, so lockdown. Wow, there's been a lot of stuff, hasn't there? Um, I think lockdown started like when Tiger King came out, which was, oh my God, I've, I've never watched something that's like so, you can't work out what you're going to feel through it. Most of it was just, couldn't really enjoy it. It was just so uncomfortable. Um, that was just bizarre, and that feels like a long time ago now. Um, the Last Dance was incredible. I loved the balls growing up, but I didn't, I guess, fully appreciate their story. Like, I think I was a bit young for it, and just 
getting to see what Michael Jordan is like as a, a human, as a sports person, like just incredible. I just loved, and there was so much kind of, yeah, going on behind the scenes that I had no idea about. Um, to, you know, athlete A, which was shocking. I just, ah, oh, just watching it, feeling so horrified that this could be going on like now. And, oh my God, that's, that was pretty, pretty hard to watch. But I think such an important piece of, um, you know, documentary uh, that we should all kind of see and be aware of and um, down to you know the crown's coming back next month I think which if you're I don't know if you're into that but British royalty you know uh, it's so so interesting that's not sport related but um, what else oh god uh, really embarrassing but I just follow finished a marathon of married at first sight Australia which you can tell I'm in quarantine you can tell I can't go out at the weekend at the moment but I also didn't realize that there was like 32 episodes of it but it is it was total car crash TV and sometimes you just, you just need that. Um, but I'm glad it's done now because I got way too invested in, in these people and I can't <laughs> wait for quarantine to be over because yeah, it's, it's getting, it's getting bad. <laughs> What's your favorite sports memory as a kid? Um, God, there's so many. Um, I think playing sport, I love that like feeling of being in a team. Um, and I think we were pretty good for memory. Um, captain of my school team but I guess becoming captain of my team at school like that was pretty cool um and just you know the highs of celebrating with your team and that ride in the minibus home after a, after a good match when you're muddy and soaking wet and uh I, w- I wouldn't say I was a kid but when I moved to Canada I got into Aussie rules football really weirdly and I had no idea that it was full contact I genuinely I don't think we talked about that before the first game which was yeah I don't know maybe I'd have rethought it but I literally made friends for life and I think any team environment I've always really really enjoyed that um but if it's actually watching sport um I'd say the summers watching Wimbledon like that was always really good um I guess we always as a I don't know as a British person we've learned to always be kind of runner-up I guess using Tim Henman as a you know, good example of that. But I think what he made like seven semifinals and we were always like, always sure that this was going to be his year. Um, so it was amazing, amazing years later to be on centre court for Wimbledon when Andy Murray finally, finally did it. Like that was, that was pretty incredible because we'd been through all of that heartache when we were young, kind of wishing Tim Hemman to, to be able to do that. Um, I guess, yeah, I think I mentioned Euro 96 before, very depressing, not a highlight, but it was still amazing to see the country kind of come together. Um, and then we finally, yeah, won a Rugby World Cup, which was, or won a World Cup. It was rugby, but 2003, England winning the Rugby World Cup, that was, that was pretty cool. Last question. Do you keep your credentials? And if so, where is that collection? Um, you'll be glad to know I do keep my credentials. I'm really geeky about it. I've kept like every single one, even like day pass. Well, actually not day passes stuff, but every event I've worked on, I've kept my credential for sure. I think they act as memories and I don't know, I always have this vision that I'm going to lose my memory when I'm old and I would love, you know, to have these things that, you know, you can look back at and they all have different memories attached to them. I can't say I go through the box and I actually went to go and dig them out earlier and I only found like six, which made me really worried. But I think they're all at my parents' house. When I moved back from uh, living in Canada, I went there first and I think they're all in my uh, my drawer in my childhood bedroom. So I'm actually going to make a note once I get out of quarantine to go and get them all and just kind of sit through 
and go back and look at them all because they all have, yeah, amazing memories and some really bad photos. I think that's also really fun to look at. <laughs> like how bad were your credential photos? I think we should almost have a competition of who's got the worst credential photo. And I think I'd probably win. I'm sure I would. Yeah, there's some where it's like the glam shot. There are others where it's definitely a mug shot. <laughs> yeah, and you're not smiling. Either they've, they've been like, you can't smile or you know, they caught you unawares because then you have to be stuck with that for like a couple of weeks or, you know, longer sometimes. And it's, yeah, that's bad. But yeah, you got to keep them. Definitely. Absolutely. Well, I really appreciate your time, Julie. Thanks so much. It was a pleasure to learn about all these different projects that you've been a part of. Yeah, thank you so much, Pete, for asking the questions. And uh, I don't know, we do a lot of interviews for other people, but I can't say I normally do them about me. So I've probably waffled on far too much. But um, thank you very much for asking me to be part of this. All of these events, Julia has had the opportunity to be a part of some pretty incredible and uniquely challenging when it comes to working on the communications piece. I really appreciate her taking the time to talk through how she's approached her work on all these various properties. I also appreciate you for taking your time to listen to Credentials Only. Don't forget there's more information on what we discussed today in the show notes on credentialsonly.com. While you're there, drop us your email. We'll slide into your inbox when we have a new episode to share. Also, if you have a minute, please leave a review or rating wherever you access your podcast. Mike Boucher edits Credentials Only, which is a Ultra Media production.